The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Colise Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Happy September, everybody. Rabbit, rabbit. Eight months down, four to go there, 2023. Also, remember, we still have three weeks of summer left. Y'all get it on. Later in the show, we head over to West Springfield to sip with Table and Vine Ambassador Michael Quinlan and show a little love to a great many think that they hate. And Live Music Friday happens with Greenfield duo High T, who will be playing at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield this Saturday. But first, the bad news. Your radiator is on the ceiling. That is a, yeah, in the basement here of French Hall. Architecturally <laughs> speaking, like why would you put a radiator? Heat rises, so why would you put it on the ceiling above where the heat needs to go? Maybe no, it's not going to fall down. No humans were originally <laughs> to d- the people destined to be in that That's building. That's not I'm how assuming. heat works. Yes. Heat rises. I think the horses were going to be down here, and it does, um, you know, keep the radiator away from the cockroaches. So uh-huh. oh. yeah, we just had oh. we just had the president of the Mass Teachers Association and UMass. Amherst architect professor uh, Max okay. Page on earlier this week. So I mean, we, honestly, we should have asked Max Page about the, what they did with this building, but like yeah. that's neither here we'll nor get there. Him to work. We know there's a lot of brutalism architecturally on campus at UMass, but that's not what we're here to talk about. There yeah. really is. And, yeah. and we get those big cockroaches, you know, like the one-inch long ones here. <gasps> <gasps> yeah. we, used, we used to get that at our old radio station all the time. It was terrifying. I know. Like the ones that are like living their best palmetto bug life. Yes. They are huge. Yeah. yeah. Well, the reason we wanted to talk to you today, and we haven't even introduced our guest. But we will. Nicholas Brzee, who is from the UMass Extension Program and a plant pathologist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where radiators are on the ceiling. For reasons we don't understand, <laughs> but also like we are in a building where there are a lot of architectural questions. Yes. So we feel you. My big question, and it was really my wife who brought this to my attention. We have a lilac bush in our yard, and it looked sadder than I've ever seen this lilac bush look in the last 20 years. It looked like somebody set it on fire and all of the leaves are withered and blackened to the point and almost crispy looking. Then we were walking down our street and there was a hedgerow of lilac bushes on our street and all of those lilac bushes looked particularly sad. Then I was at the Amherst home of our resident astronomer, Hampshire College's Dr. Salman Hamid, and I looked out his window and I saw his lilac bush (laughs) looked abysmal and I thought maybe there is a lilac plague in the four counties of Western Mass. So who better to ask than UMass Extension, who deals with plant pathology? What is going on with lilacs in the 413? And is it flood-related? Well, yes. So the lilacs are uh, experiencing a pretty serious foliar blight caused by a fungal pathogen. And it is widespread throughout the valley and throughout the state. And as bad as it looks, um, it really is more of a cosmetic issue for these plants than a serious health issue since we're we're so late in the growing season and uh, lilacs are just so hardy that they they should be fine going into the next season but yeah right now they look absolutely terrible and it is because of the very wet and humid summer that we have experienced so many of these fungi they need shade they need lots of free moisture and so these dense lilac canopies are perfect for that when you have this inundation of rain that we've had so the spores are splashed all over new infection centers develop and then a foliar blight can consume the plant like it has on so many around the area but it's likely that they are not going to be damaged 
for the next season, even the blooms when they come out. Also, how Correct. terrifying a word, a phrase is nuclear blight. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the lilacs are extremely hardy, so it's very difficult to kill a lilac, even if you're trying to. So uh, they should be fine going into next season. You know, ideally, we don't want our plants to shed all their leaves, you know, in August, late August. But lilacs don't have any particularly nice foliage, so we're not missing out on anything there. And growth is, you know, pretty much complete for the season. So they should be more or less fine next season. There may be a little bit of uh, reductions in growth or flowering, but they should weather this pretty well. We've been focusing so much on fruits and vegetables because of agriculture in this area, but are there more shrubs and bushes that are being affected by how wet it has been and continues to be? We're seeing more foliar diseases like what's happening with the lilacs. But for a lot of trees, they're really enjoying this deep watering that they've received this summer, especially after the really intense drought that we experienced in 2022. So for a lot of mature trees, you know, they really need that heavy rain that we've experienced to get that deep watering throughout their root system. And especially for a lot of our urban trees that have really restricted root zones or a lot of impervious surfaces around them, they need a lot of water for that to, to really, you know, sink into uh, the root zone where they have roots. So it's been really good for some trees and shrubs. And then for others, you know, you see these these localized disease outbreaks, which are not good. So it's a, it's a, a little bit of a mix. We're speaking with Dr. Nick Brzee from UMass Extension. And I had reached out because I had noticed that the lilacs in my yard and in my neighborhood and then in other people's neighborhoods were looking terrible. And I thought, I I've got the scoop on this story that nobody's talking about, about the death <laughs> of lilacs in the 413. Um, and, and Clem from UMass Extension, as well as you, Nick, kind of reached out and said, yeah, it's going to be that lilac situation is going to be fine. But there are other really bad things that are going on. Are there particular types of bushes and plants that are being dramatically affected that won't have an easy time surviving through this, like you say, the lilacs will? Yeah, one of the biggest disease issues that we're facing now in New England is beech leaf disease. And that is affecting our native American beech and also European beech, which is widely planted as an ornamental. And beech leaf disease is caused by a foliar nematode Nematodes are microscopic roundworms, and they are abundant in all types of environments. We find them in terrestrial habitats. We find them in aquatic habitats. They're, they're everywhere. Most of them are what we consider free living, where they are not causing any noticeable harm to plants. But some are pathogenic and cause disease. Like most free living hippies. Yes. <laughs> most of them are harmless. But every once in a while, it gets toxic. Once in a while. You nematodes. You so, so this nematode, we suspect, is um, non-native in North America. And it's targeting beach. And it attacks the foliage and the buds. And large populations lead to dieback and death of the trees. And beach is one of our most abundant forest trees. So this is really... Um, quite a dramatic event that we're kind of living through right now. We don't exactly know how it's going to play out, but it's predicted that we're going to lose the majority of our beach population over the next several years to, to decades, which is uh, quite significant for wow. the forest and our, our managed landscapes. Is this like a second wave after the elms? You know, it really, it, it is, it does feel like we're living in this moment where like chestnut blight, like Dutch elm disease, we're about to lose um, a tree species that is so dominant. Beach makes up 
uh, almost 10% of all trees in the state. And we have almost 1.5 billion trees in Massachusetts. And beech makes up almost 10% of that. So it's uh, a dominant component of our forests and, and our, our cities as well. With some of these invasive species, it'll be like a bug where you can see the uh, the Asian milfoil or something like that. And, you know, if you see it, let people know it, moths. and we can uh, remediate in some way. Are these nematodes, these kind of microscopic, scary things that we're talking about, is there a way to defend against them? Is there things that we as homeowners and people who live with uh, amongst the trees can do to, to help? Or is this like a... Too late, everybody. Climate change. Well done. See ya, 10% of the billion trees in Massachusetts. It's really an unprecedented situation that a nematode would cause mortality in a large tree like beech. So there, there isn't a precedent we can go back to for management. And so right now there's a lot of trials that are going on with various nematicides and other chemicals to try to slow it down. But none of them appear to be, you know, 100% effective or even moderately effective. So there is a lot of concern uh, among arborists and other tree care professionals. There's a lot of research that's happening right now, but there are no tried and true management practices that we can undertake right now to save beach. And so unfortunately, by the time we have a, a regimen that's likely to work, there will have been pretty significant die off of, of trees. Is this perhaps like a result not just of climate change, but resistances built up due to pesticides already being in use? It's more an issue of global trade. And mm. so we see this time and again. There's just so many introduced fungi, bacteria, insects, in this case, nematodes from other continents through global shipping. We're just moving so much material back and forth between these continents and these organisms hitch a ride and they get introduced and many never develop into a widespread outbreak, but it's just a, a constant inundation of new invasive organisms and only a small percentage are actually are able to establish. But when they do, we have, you know, something like Dutch elm disease or in, in this case, uh, beech leaf disease that just kind of takes off. I'm trying to fight off the depression, Dr. Nick Brzee from uh, UMass Extension, who is a pathologist, a plant pathologist with the Extension program. And I know that there was a time where almost all viticulture, wine and vines in Europe was decimated, but it was American rootstock grafted into that was resistant to these type of things that was essentially able to save wine as we know it in Europe. Is there a potential for, say, our elms here in Massachusetts and New England who are suffering from this that came from somewhere else to graft in or rescue and not have a decimated elm population by grafting in something that is resistant from somewhere else? Yeah, that's definitely a focus of, of research, looking for um, resistant trees or going back to the source of the organism, in this case, the nematode, and looking at native populations of beech in those areas to see know what kind of disease it causes in those populations you know in the case like elm we have identified resistant cultivars of american elm and those are sold in nurseries and you can plant those today they're still susceptible to infection but they they do a good job of resisting the disease hopefully we will get to that point with beech but that's many many years away um, any kind of research or trials with trees just takes a long time because they grow so slowly so it literally takes decades to kind of come up with these answers. And unfortunately, 
for some of these infested trees. They're dying in a matter of a few years. And so it's just going to sweep through New England is our suspicion. And there'll be widespread mortality before we have a lot of answers to these questions. That's our show, everybody. No, it's just, again, it it reminds me of like (laughs) our talk with the folks at the Berkshire Botanical Garden where their horticulturalist was uh, lamenting how many like like every time they talk to their arborist and they just are told about more pathogens moving up from that they never had to deal with before that now are killing like large populations of things that they've been cultivating and maintaining for, you know, decades, like nine centuries. And it's just upsetting. What what draws the nematodes to the beach? Have we figured out what draws them to the beech trees yet? They are dispersed by birds, by insects, mm-hmm. probably by small rodents. They could probably move locally on air currents. So um, bird dispersal seems to be a primary way in which they're spread. The fact that they're microscopic means that we can't see them in the field, um, but there's a, a lot of different means in which they can spread. Spread through the nursery trade seems to be fairly limited, but that's also um, a likely source in some cases. But there's just plenty of of ways they can hitch a ride and move from beach to beach. And which is one of the things that's most alarming is we'll find an isolated infested beach and we know it's been spread by something with long distance means of dispersal. There's no other infected trees around it. So it is able to to travel long distances from areas uh, with known infestations to areas that don't have it. And once again, like free living hippies, these free-living nematodes have found a way to hitch a ride from isolated beach to beach. Can't we make them, like, interested in bittersweet or something like that? I would love to put a terrible nematode infestation yeah, that's what on, we need. We need on some, the bittersweet in my yard. We need something, Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, we need a nematode that's going to go after here. Japanese knotweed or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. These, bittersweet is the worst. These nematodes, even though they're not actually toads, are my nemesis worms now. So Maybe they can get interested in sumac. There's any number of things we would like <laughs> to uh, try to channel their energies in destroying, not our beaches, because where is Beach Ken going to go, first of all? Yeah, it's actually my job. It's just beach. Right. And what a good job you do at beach. And then, second of all, 10% of all of the trees in Massachusetts it's over the next couple job. of years. His is, whole job is beach. Yeah, is uh, complicated. Are there any diseases that are hitting maybe a little bit south of here, a little bit west of here that you're worried about hitting our horizon? Yes. And number one on that list is oak wilt. So that is a... No, the oaks are next! <laughs> yeah, that's, it's very similar to, to uh, Dutch elm disease, oh. except it's more difficult to diagnose. So, yeah, that is one that's in western New York and Pennsylvania. Oh, it's We're real close. Kind of, it's coming. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, yeah. We're just waiting for it here in New England. That Did you watch The Last of Us HBO television show and think of this I, I as reality? Know. Oh, my God. Not, don't watch. Don't. Yeah, yeah it's all, all about you fungus, live, fungus you turning you in, into zombies. For the zombies. And it's based on a real fungus. It's, uh, yeah. I would love to hear your take on that someday. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, Oakwell moves, moves very slowly, so we'll have a chance with that one. Again, Good. like zombies. Yes, like a zombie. Um, back to the slightly positive thing that brought you to us today, <laughs> Dr. Nick Brzee from <laughs> UMass Extension, the lilacs. They may look sad right now, but they are probably going to weather this season and be fine next year. Should people who have lilacs in their yards or access to lilacs do anything to uh, assist them? Or is it nature will take its course with this and everything and should be okay? And or prevent this in the future, yeah. too. 
Yeah, one of the things you can do is, you know, as the leaves are shed, you can clean those up from underneath the plant because they do harbor the fungus and they allow it to persist into next spring. So by cleaning up the foliage, you'll remove a lot of the pathogen from that site. You can compost it or take it to, uh, you know, the brush dump or something like that. But pruning out any dead material, opening up the plants with pruning to improve airflow and light penetration into the interior canopy can help. And, you know, lilacs get very dense, so just thinning them out a little bit can help. So like free living hippies, air oh those things out once in a while. Are you talking about thinning out hippies? <laughs> I mean, air themselves out. Individual hippies, not as a <laughs> not as a population of people. I love you hippies. I miss you, Steve the hippie in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Nick Brzee uh, from UMass Extension, thank you so much for uh, easing some of my fears and then also creating several other seated other fears of things to look forward to in the future. Oh, no, beech trees. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Even if this was just like 15 minutes of horror. Yeah, right. I know. Mythology is kind of sad, <laughs> I mean, isn't it? I mean, like, I hope that you, you find lightness outside of your job to help you deal with finding out about the trees dying. We'll always have uh, bittersweet and not weed. <laughs> no! We'll always no! have poison ivy. You'll grow we'll to love plants Grow to there. love it. Uh, no! No, I don't want to. I don't have to. Well, that was fun. <laughs> Up next, we'll drown our, drown our environmental sorrows in Bordeaux with Michael Quinlan of Table and Vine. And later in the show, a softer beverage. We'll have High Tea, live music Friday with Greenfield's own High Tea. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Once again, we enter the Tina Turner Memorial Wine Thunderdome here with our friend Michael Quinlan, the ambassador of Table and Vine in West Springfield. And you are bringing out a grape that gets a bad rap, I think. What are we gonna be drinking today, Michael Quinlan? We've got a couple of Chardonnays. I had a few Chardonnays, whatever. To your point, right, Chardonnay, for being the most popular grape, is also controversial. Why is that? Because people did bad things with it for years. Yeah, and some still do. Some still do yeah. bad things yeah. with it, yeah. yes. I won't tell you Look what I've done with it. at this label <laughs> that says buttery on it and sneering at it. We're not drinking that one. We're not drinking that one. Because no. we want you, listener, to become a wine snob like us. Which isn't to say that if you like buttery Chardonnay that like you shouldn't like buttery Chardonnay. Just don't bring it to my house. Right. That's 100% true, right? It's like, <laughs> but I mean, I feel like the difference for, for so much stuff is like the commercialization, right? So, I mean, this is made buttery. It's appealing to, to a consumer that likes that, that richness, that flavor. But, you know, it's commercial. It's, it's, it's a wine that's not necessarily made completely tied to its place of growth, to its sunlight, to its terroir, right, as we say. What? And where gave Chardonnay this bad rep that people, even if they don't really know about wine, may have heard like, oh, I don't, I know I'm not supposed to like Chardonnay unless it's on oak Chardonnay and I don't really understand what any of this means. Right. I just heard other people say. Well, I mean, let's face it. So what Chardonnay does better than almost any other grape is produces sugar, which converts to alcohol, right? It makes boldly flavored power wines because as a grape grows, right, it's acid. If you think about like eating fruit before it's ripe, it's so tart and that's grapes for sure, right? Grapes in June, the acid's super high, the sugar's super low, and then throughout the growing season, the 
sugar comes up, the acid goes down. Along with that, of course, the skins get ripe and that's where the flavor comes from. So Chardonnay will produce tons of sugar, tons of flavor. And, you know, it's America, Jack. Like, we're after flavor. We're after, like, maximum, right? Like, yeah. like America! This Chardonnay, you know what it is? Extra. Yeah, because once again, as Americans, we are real bad at nuance. Yes. We've never been good at it. Right. Like, it's, it's gotta so be big and in our face, otherwise we just miss it entirely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing too, that, that a lot of growers in California, and this is, you know, going back 40, 50 years here, we're looking at things as, as farmers, right? They're looking at things like ripeness is good, right? But now what we've started to understand is ripeness is good, but what about balance, right? And I think even in California, you see, especially at the high end, you see incredibly well-made Chardonnays now because people are growing in cooler climates, places where acidity stays as part of the, the final product. And it's so important, right? It creates everything in our mouth. It gives the entire trampoline effect to, to the fruit and, and, and everything else. It's also worth noting that Chardonnay from California is really what put the U.S. viticulture and, and winemaking on the map when it was brought to France in the Judgment of Paris, as they call it, and won in a blind tasting all these awards. Again, there's a movie about it called Bottle Shock in which Chris Pine is wearing the worst wig ever. Hey, can we get a barrel sample for this French wine snob? He doesn't think we make real wine here. Some of those places are in existence and yeah. make excellent Chardonnay Absolutely. in a way that isn't ham-fisted in the way that we have been disparaging it. If you think about it too though, right, we know that our, our entire planet is warmer than it was, right? So achieving ripeness in the 70s was different. Like people, you talk to winemakers now and they're like, oh, my grandfather, he never dreamt of making a wine that was 14% alcohol and we're making 14, 5, 15% all the time. I mean, it's like we're, we're on a different planet now in terms of, uh, of the ability to gr get grapes ripe. That's why high elevation, cooler climates have become so important because these winemakers are trying to find a way to make a wine with nuance, and that's step one. Well, what are we gonna drink here in the Wine Thunderdome at Table and Vine with Michael Quinlan? Now I that we've that neither to... of these Chardonnays are from America. <laughs> that's what I was gonna say too. That's, unless you have 70 bucks that you wanna spend on a bottle of wine and get Chateau Montalena, where incidentally, former mayor of Northampton, David Narkowitz's brother works. Right? It's wicked good. You see why these wines put the American wine culture on the map. But great, great if you are on a budget, like radio hosts, you need to think about what else to do. Well, here's two different Chardonnays from France. And one comes from Burgundy, right? The southern part of Burgundy in the Macon region. And one comes from the Languedoc so close to the water that it that the, the vineyard faces a little lagoon right on the Mediterranean. And that's what Languedoc stands for. It means uh, dock on the lagoon. It does? No, it doesn't. It has nothing to do with that. I believe it means the language of Ock, which is like an ancient yes. pre-French language, means yes. Yes. Yeah. Language of yes. The language of yes. Would it be like languid dock? Like it's a languid dock. Like no, yeah. We're just lounging on it. on it like we were all for the last week when it was beach week. Yeah, because actually my job, it's just beach. Let me know when the grapes are ripe and I'll get up off this chaise lounge. <laughs> and now you'll be using wet leg. Yes, I will. <laughs> That's a band, everybody. It's, it's not the thing that I've done to ruin Chardonnay yet. All right, what's this first one? So the first one is the Macon. It's Macon Looney. What's, what's neat about both these wines is they're both made by cooperatives, right? So cooperatives are a group of small growers. They all own land, but you know, they don't own the winemaking equipment. They don't own all of the necessary things you would need to make wine, but they're just farmers at, in, at their core. And so they all put their grapes together, one winemaker, one facility, and then someone that goes out and sells it too, right? Because no winemaker gets paid until the wine goes out and it gets sold. Think Cabot Cheese, where there's all sorts 
sorts of dairy producers in the Northeast. Right. Their cooperative is Cabot Cheese. It is not a small cooperative, and a lot of these are not either. Right. Or our family farms, who were also on a previous episode. Right. Of. All right. So, so this is oh. unoaked uh, Macon Looney Le Charme. Hello, melons. Hello, Looney. It's L-U-G-N-Y, not like the Lugny. Looney Lugny. Tunes. Yeah, Lugny. Pretty much every salesman that's ever sold this is like, Mac on lug nuts. Cave de Lugny? That's what it says? <laughs> Les Charmes? Don't squeeze the Charmes. Ladies, you can't squeeze the Charmes. Burgundy is, in my humble opinion, the best Chardonnay. It is. White Burgundy is always Chardonnay. Always Chardonnay. Yeah. People will say things like, I know I'm not supposed to like Chardonnay, but I know I am supposed to like Burgundy. I'll have the white. And then- I can't believe how many people will come in and go like, oh, I, I want to get one of these Pouy Fouisse. I love that. And you're like, oh, have you ever had La, La Crema Chardonnay or this thing? They're like, oh no, no I don't like Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, you're drinking Chardonnay there, but it's completely different, right? It's right. Just... And it is different, even mm -hmm. though it's the same grape. There is something very special about Burgundy where this is from. Oh. Melons, right? The citric, Melons. citric thing here. Mm -hmm. That acidity just spreads. Mm. And it's light too, like there's no, like it's so, so bouncy. Mm. A big tasting note that I often get in Chardonnays that I like can be green apple. And I think I'm getting mm -hmm. some of that in yeah. this. As we head into apple season, whether I'm ready or not. We're just happy to get some at this point. Yeah, I saw um, an email from Grow Food that Apex is at, uh, was at the market this week and that they feel like they're gonna be able to be there every week. So I was okay. like, oh, that's a relief, you know. Michael Quinlan, also on the board of Grow Food Northampton. Yeah, <laughs> talking with the, the plant pathologist, just sort of like, okay, so this, the cascade of this year agriculturally has led to these wine tastings being more enjoyable because I need more at home thinking about the environment. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. My jam is affordable white burgundy, AKA Chardonnay. If we were to be able to talk about how much this wine would be, how would we describe that? It'd be like halfway between Half somewhere in there. Halfway between uh, a Hamilton. <laughs> a Hamilton or two. And a Future Tubman. It's Future really Tubman one. sounds like a, a sci-fi series that should definitely, <laughs> definitely exist. Yep. You can write it. Yes. Khalees Smith's book coming this fall. Not sci-fi. Not sci-fi. Fantasy though. Mm -hmm. but and fall. for children. Future Tubman can be for children too. This is delicious. Now I can't untaste the green apple thing yeah. that I said. I put that note in my head and I really love that. Well, you know, green apple often ties to more of the acidity, right? It's like, cause there's really two kinds of acidity in wine, right? There's malic acidity and there's lactic acidity. And it goes through, like a lot of wine goes through a conversion. This one didn't, right? So malic acidity. And I always think that like when you're eating a green apple, you feel the malic acidity. So it makes your mouth water so sharply. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what this one has. And they call it malo lactic fermentation no, like, and the lactic sounds like milky type things lactate when you get a creamier or buttery Chardonnay that's what is yeah. one of the reasons it's like that another and people do know this buzzword too is I know that I can get Chardonnay if it's unoaked Chardonnay which I don't disagree with most of the time frankly depending on what kind of oak but talk about why that is a factor in people's perception about Chardonnay right so again getting back to acidity right if you if you grow grapes and you make a wine that has a lot of acidity and you put it into oak barrels if you think about wood right wood's porous so air's going in whenever air goes into wine acidity goes down which is why it doesn't taste as good if it sits on the counter for 2 days because the it just gets so flat because the acidity just dissipates uh, into the air and that's what the oak barrels do too but in a controlled sense 
you still should have some acidity when you're done and when you bottle it, but the acidity is gone, just calmed from the air transfer, basically. And American oak has wider grains, so yeah. more of that transfer happens. Yeah. And, and French oak and, and other Hungarian oak. and other types of oak have yeah. a tighter grain right. and impart less into right. the wine itself. Right, and that's right. American oak with that wider grain, just more wine is going to seep into the to the oak, and then more of that oak flavor is going to seep into the wine. So American oak is that powerful vanilla. Some people President Camacho too. of oak. <laughs> Dwayne Elizondo Camacho, five-time Ultimate SmackDown champion, porn superstar, and President of the United States. I wonder if that will change when the oaks die. We've already discussed that earlier in the show. We don't. Brings it down. Yeah. What's the second wine? Let me just let me just stand back up. The second wine is from the south, like I said, it's from the Languedoc. So it's also Chardonnay, 100%. And I'm, in I'm really interested to see what you think of this wine because I feel like this is similar and different in so many ways, right? And this is Wine Thunderdome here. So you're really trying to find wines that have a lot in common and slight variances to see if those variances drive a person's opinion one way or another. What is with this maple caramel thing happening? Creme brulee was the number one <laughs> thing I smelled when I put it in there. Toasted marshmallow? Yeah. No oak barrels. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, super ripe. What on earth? Super How? ripe fruit. Like now you're at, we're, before. Languedoc is in France. We, yeah. I mean, I always assume people know that, but they don't. And um, it's in Southern France, right. so it's warmer there. So it means it's going to get riper. Yeah. And we've got to pear here, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. like pear creme brulee. Poached pears. Oh. I haven't, I haven't sipped it yet because I'm, I am contemplating it like my navel. It's got lint in it as well. Oh, I love this excellent silence, right? The contemplation of this wine. Because the wine has interesting complexity and yeah. it's different. I'll tell you the secret. This wine is made with a little bit of oak, but not oak barrels. Oh, so they put oak, oak chips? chips? Like a big tea bag ah. of oak chips into the stainless steel tanks. If you think about it, then this is exactly what this wine becomes is what you think, right? It retains all of the acidity. Your mouth still waters quite a bit, but you have the oak flavor. So there's no dissipation of acidity from oak barrel, but you do get that soft sort of vanilla match. It's like a matchstick thing to me every time I've had this wine. I couldn't figure out how on earth they would get such what felt yeah. like a, a woody thing from a wine that was yeah. not barreled in oak. Right. Well done. It's also got like a little more body to like because like it's got good acidity, but it's just got like a little more body to it. So the Macon Looney is a top seller, one of our better selling white burgundies. And then you have this Leger Chardonnay from Languedoc. And we're like, wow, like we found a counterpart here that's not from Burgundy. That's still really affordable. This Legade Chardonnay from Languedoc feels like they're they're trying to reach to the American market. Throwing in, oh, throwing yeah. in those oak chips into the stainless yeah. steel. Yeah, in a very French way. Like, yeah. we, we'll do a little bit of this. Are these comparable in price? They are. Two wines enter, one wine leaves. One that wine is leaves. the theme of the Thunderdome. And we are at Table and Vine, West Springfield, with Michael Quinlan, the Table and Vine ambassador. We've got Cave de Luni. <laughs> Spelled L-U-G-N-Y, Le Charme from Burgundy, and the Le Jade, the tricky, unoaked, like the Jade Fox from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. <laughs> Chardonnay from the Languedoc. It does have a man riding a horse on the bottle, so you know, like that's where the French comes in. Yeah, it's embossed. Otherwise, like this is pretty like modern for, for a label. <laughs> yeah, it does not look like a very traditional French label. There's also a man riding a horse on top of my chest. Could be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
We always say these things because we care about you, Michael Quinlan. I know, I know. It's just one of those things when I heard you say that, all I could think was interior crocodile alligator. I drive a Chevrolet movie theater. Am I the only one that thought that? You got, yes. <laughs> but welcome to our club. We all live in our own worlds. There's a man riding a horse on top of my chest. A life of non sequiturs. Yes. It's time to vote. Okay. okay. Want me to go first? Yeah. I'm going with the white burgundy, which I have always loved and appreciated. White burgundy, my favorite place to get Chardonnay from. I still love Chardonnay. I do like the Languedoc one. I don't like that they're trying to trick us by putting wood chips in it, I'll tell you that. Oh, you're just mad about the, you're mad about the conceit. I'm mad about the conceit. You just feel lied to. And also, like, they're trying to placate the American palate quite clearly. I don't think there's French people that want that, necessarily. But you don't, you know. I don't know. Who knows what the French like? Oh, wow. That's snails? A, that's a whole statement. I love also, snails. Also, snails are delicious. Oh yeah, I love snails. Good. Who's next to vote? <laughs> I don't know I'm if gonna, I should speak after I'm that gonna, pile of Molotov I, cocktails you just threw out there. This is not a cocktail thunderdome. It's a Molotov cocktail thunderdome. <laughs> yeah. We'll get out the anarchist cookbook and show you our favorite Who's recipes. Supreme reign supreme! <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna vote next because I want to put the pressure on Khalees. I'm voting for the Lejade. Wow. I just love right. that softness to the wine. Uh, still with the city, but, but soft. It's up to you. <laughs> so, I'm gonna go with the Looney. And like, I like the Jade a lot. I think it would be a check this out sort of wine. And I'm not sure by the end of the bottle, I'd be as into it as I am at the beginning. I was actually thoroughly interested in smelling that wine for a long time, the Le Jade, because of the creme brulee, the marshmallow, the maple, yeah. all that stuff that was going on. Fascinating. Yeah. If I want to drink a whole bottle of this with somebody. Then I'm probably going to drink the Looney. Or yeah. even by yourself. Exactly, yeah, but I try not to tell too many people about yeah, that. I know no. there are people that have alcohol issues that listen to this show, and I apologize that we do this every week. You know, no not to listen on Fridays for part of the show. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We're with you in spirit, but not in spirits. Um, I, feel, I feel like this is, this is the drinking equivalent of the internet is for porn song. The internet is really, really great. For porn. It's like, sorry guys, we drink. You know, NEPM has a whole wine lovers weekend. I don't know what to tell you. Sorry. <laughs> White Burgundy wins. White Burgundy wins. White Burgundy yeah. wins. But they are both really cool wines. And the big takeaway that I would hope that the listener would have is that don't do what I hear so many people do, which is say, I know I'm not supposed to like Chardonnay, or I know I'm only supposed to like unoaked Chardonnay. Neither of those things are necessarily true. I think you're supposed to like whatever I tell you to like. <laughs> you're supposed to like whatever oh. your tongue tells you that's you right. like. That, oh, yeah. That's what I meant. That's but what also, I meant. Also, you can figure out some better words to describe what you like to have people help you out. And also expand what your tongue touches from just California Chardonnay. Really? Try Are France. Expand what your tongue touches. That's where we're at now. Yeah. There's a light switch over there. There's some outlets too. Yeah. yeah. Stick your head in yeah. the microwave and give yourself a tan. Stick your head in the microwave and get yourself a tan. Weird Al always. Yes. <laughs> always. <laughs> on the way, it's Live Music Friday with the Franklin County-based band playing at Hawksome Reed in Greenfield on Saturday night. High tea. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. It's Live Music Friday. Jed Gottlieb of the Boston Herald writes, High T went looking for a way to represent the themes of the new album, The Wick and The Flame, that felt artistic and off-kilter. The folk folk roots indie duo from Western Mass decided to set a dollhouse ablaze. We approve. We ended up lighting this dollhouse on fire for the cover art, singer-guitarist Isabella DeHart told the Herald. But before we lit it on fire, we decorated it. We put fake moss on it. We covered it in glitter. We painted it. We put pine cones on it. We put in TLC before burning it down. It felt like an apt metaphor for creation and music and life, DeHart added. You create something, and then you have to let it go. And joining us... In the studio is Isabella DeHert and Isaac Elliott, the duo behind the group that burned a dollhouse down. Hi, T. <laughs> that is us. Hello. <laughs> we want to talk more about that in just a little bit. Okay. Playing tomorrow, Saturday, September 2nd at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield with previous Live Music Friday guests, Cloud Belly. Welcome to you both. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Okay. Indeed. Before we chat, let's hear a song. same room you've got now his mama's mama sewed those sheets the same sun went down over those same cold evergreens your daddy raised you with a bike that he learned from a lineage with no love inside he never knew there was a choice how could he give you one Nah, just teach you their advice Don't try to double, try to double back Try to make it without the pack Try to double, try to double back You'll never make it like that But maybe in the night time Running down the same old set of stairs As him, oh If you get it right this time, maybe you won't leave the air. Don't miss the landing, don't let the carpet slow you down. Don't forget where the creaky board is, don't let it sell you out. Sneak out of Salvation Army, he had hid away, but the porch light lit up fast. And your grandpa had an anger that left daddy in a cast. He tried to double, tried to double back, tried to make it without the pack. But you can double, you can double back, and you can make it like that. 
Maybe in the night time Running down the same old stairs as him As him Oh, if you get it right this time Maybe one day you can let him in Oh, don't miss the landing Don't let the porch lights slow you down High T here on Live Music Friday in the fabulous 413. Soon to be Cole Rain's High Soon to be Cole Rain week. Oh, yes. Whoa. They're yeah. stealing us. <laughs> <laughs> playing at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield tomorrow night and then playing as part of the Rivers and Roads Festival mm-hmm. next weekend with huge heavy hitters mm-hmm. Dar Williams and Sean Colvin and Amy, Amy Ray, Ray of the Indigo Girls, Lisa Loeb, Sweet Honey in the Rock. Oh my God. That, yeah. How are you guys feeling about that? Yeah, that's Oh all. God. <laughs> in the best possible yeah. way. Oh God. Psyched and also psyched out. Absolutely terrified. We're going to be there with our favorite, Heather Maloney. We're going to be singing some of her new songs from her new album as well. Um, but I think, I mean, the Indigo Girls have been just a huge inspiration to you, Isaac, and myself. And I think getting to play this festival is such an honor. So we're really excited. And a renewed interest in the Indigo Girls because of the Barbie movie and Boom. Beach Ken. Beach I, I promised our engineer, so, Betsy, that Bet- I would try to mention Beach Ken in every So now segment. we have a hat trick. Yeah, all right, and okay. everybody's satisfied. Yes. yes. There you go. We wouldn't have played another song if you hadn't been okay. able to work that in. <laughs> I feel like, Isabella, I've known you since you were practically a young child. Well, I remember coming on your show um, when I was in middle school because we'd made mittens that we were giving away to the community. Uh-huh. Awful mittens that, like, <laughs> you know, third graders had made. But we came on and we talked to you about it. And I remember, I think this is one of the first times we'd met. Wow. And, and it's been, yeah, years. Now you're a fixture of the local music scene. You're part of the Green River Festival and the backstage crew. Mm-hmm. And you're an alumna of the Institute for Musical Arts in yes, Goshen, oh, uh, yeah. Rock Camp for Girls and June Millington mm-hmm. and Ann Hackler and all those great people mm-hmm. there. And how did you and Isaac meet? I'll let you answer that question. Hello. Right? Yeah, um, Hello. <laughs> yeah we, we actually met at uh, uh, Berkeley College of Music has a five-week uh, high school summer program. Um, yes, and for all those crazy music teens. Yeah, crazy time, <laughs> fun time. Uh, we met there. We didn't actually start playing music there, but we met there and became friends. Yeah. And then years later, we're in each other's bubble in the pandemic and we're like, wait a minute. Why, Why are we, we not doing this? Because that was care. our silver lining of the pandemic days because I couldn't play with my other group, Calliope Jones, because we were scattered about and Isaac and I were living together. And we had, a, yeah, we had that little light bulb moment of like, why have we never done this? So now we're here <laughs> um, and we're very happy to be here. Truly. And you were uh, one of the finalists for WBUR's p- Who Put Forward for the uh, the Tiny Desk yes, concert. Yes, we were. So, yeah. For our song, Old Cowboy, um, with a video made by the wonderful Wyatt Andrews, who we adore working with, who's doing sound at Hawks and Reed. Yep. Um, yeah, so all Western Mass people all the time. What a wonderful bubble we're in. <laughs> and various other places, too. Like, Wyatt's a great person. Yeah. Oh, yes. He's Indeed. done sound for Extempore several 
many, many times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take a little break and then we'll come back and hear more music with High T on this Live Music Friday on and the Fabulous 413. Houses. Yeah, we want to hear about the dollhouses. <laughs> we have much to say. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. It's Live Music Friday, like we do most Fridays, bring in a local band, have them play in studio. And today we're joined by Franklin County's High T, who did something for one of their albums that you can pick up on their Bandcamp page. Because, oh, hey, it's also Bandcamp Friday, the day that Bandcamp waives its fees for people who are selling things on their platform. But you burned a dollhouse down for some of the visuals after building up this beautiful thing. Do you have, are there before and after pictures on the album? I have them we somewhere. Have <laughs> They're not <laughs> newly released, unreleased images. <laughs> but we got lucky. So my mother is, she has a vintage shop in Shelburne Falls, and she just has a basement full of the weirdest things, coolest things, weirdest things. And I said, Mother, could you find us a dollhouse? And she said, of course I can. <laughs> she found this dollhouse. I don't know where. I don't know whose it had been, but we gave it a new life and then a, a death, unfortunately. <laughs> um, all in the name of arts. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we do have some pictures of the dollhouse before. There, somewhere. Yeah, they definitely exist. Yeah. <laughs> how do you like writing for this group as opposed to Calliope Jones? Like how, mm. how does the songwriting process feel different for you or does it? That's a really good question. I feel like with Calliope Jones, especially our new stuff, I think about dancing. Mm. And in this, I think about storytelling. And there's always an interesting uh, medium, I think, a, a mix of the two. But for us, I love doing things that tell stories, but also really let you release emotions, whether it's in softer moments or loud screaming moments. We've said we are moving more towards like a folk punk world now, which we're really having fun with. So I love to think about just how can we release whatever the emotion is of a story I want to tell. That's what I think about with High Tea, at least. Right on. Well, maybe we should do the credits now so Let's that we can get right. another song in for this Live Music Friday. So uh, I do want to say that uh, musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Waxahachie, Screaming Trees, Tina Turner, Adam Sandler, Team America, World Police, Idiocracy, Wet Leg, Looney Tunes, Chip the Rapper, Weird Al Yankovic, and our guests today, <laughs> High Tea. <laughs> Our director is Tony Fortnite Hibernation Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy. Christmas is for all times Lankto. Our engineering team is Bart Hard Drive Despair Rankin, Phil Typically Phil Bishop, Kara It'll Happen Foster, and Punk Rude Boy Dubé. And now, more live music from the band that'll be playing tomorrow at Hawks and Reed in Greenfields on September 2nd, and then playing as part of the Rivers and Roads Festival with Heather Maloney next weekend. Greenfields soon to be Cole Rains, High Tea. <laughs> Crossroads, babe, I got a slice of heaven and a little piece of hell, and I've been waiting for you at the wishing well. I'll trade you money and fame, or just a leg up in the game. Maybe something pretty to put to waste, or maybe something more kind. Maybe some of my time, maybe something the both of us like. There's magic in the way you dance with me and say I seem just like an angel falling from grace I got a whole lot of loving and I could use it on you Got a whole lot of loving and some heartbreak and too Whole lot of loving and I could use it on you Got a whole lot of 
For being here, playing tomorrow at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield, Isabel DeHerd and Isaac Elliott also playing next weekend at the uh, River and Roads Festival. Monday we'll have a special Labor Day show focusing on better labor practices and worker-owned co-ops with Dean's Beans. And talking about the various way that people of various classes used to talk in Chicopee with linguist Ren Wood. Plus, live music from the hardest working man in show business in Western Mass., Ray Ray Mason. Mason. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Cleese Smith. See you next week on the Fabulous 413.